0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Silvia Pianta, junior scientist at RFF's sister institution, the European Institute on Economics and the Environment. Silvia is an author of a recent paper describing how researchers that use integrated assessment models, or IAMs, can incorporate political dynamics into their models to more accurately represent the world. In today's episode, I'll ask Sylvia which political dimensions are the most important to add and how they can affect the outcomes of modeling efforts. The conversation is a little wonky, but it's really important. IAMs play a major role in shaping energy and climate policies, and making them more realistic could go a long way to improving our decision-making on this crucial topic. Stay with us. Silvia Pianta from the European Institute on Economics and the Environment, our sister institution over in Italy. Welcome to Resources Radio.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Silvia, we always ask our guests how they became interested in working on environmental issues and if that interest sort of started when you were young or whether it developed later in life. So, how did you get inspired to work on these topics?
1: Yeah, I would say I always wanted to work on these topics, and at the beginning it took me some time to figure out which perspective I wanted to take, so at the beginning I was doing things on international environmental law, and then I realized I wanted to switch to environmental policy but the story that I always tell um, when they ask me this question is that so my name is Silvia which um, means uh, like the root of the name comes from forest and pianta means plant so it's kind of in my destiny that I had to work on these kind of things <laughs> so yeah probably it's my parents fault somehow although I don't think they did it on purpose but uh, yeah that's how it started
0: probably. <laughs> That is so funny. So you're green to the core.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's great. Well, um, Sylvia, today we're gonna talk about your work on um climate change and political science. Uh and we're gonna focus on a really fascinating paper um that you wrote uh with a colleague Uh, And the paper is called Emissions Lock-In, Capacity, and Public Opinion, How Insights from Political Science Can Inform Climate Modeling Efforts. Of course, we'll have a link to the paper in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, But I think it would be great to start by... um, asking you to help us understand the three major barriers that you describe in the paper uh, that impede ambitious climate policy. Uh, Those three are listed in the title, right? Lock-in, capacity, and public opinion. Um, So I'd like to take each of those in turn. Can you start off by helping us understand how this idea of emissions lock-in affects climate policy decisions?
1: Yeah, sure. So before um, replying to this specific question, um, I would like also to say that I think these things, we don't want to frame them only as kind of constraints of, of ambitious climate policy, but they can also be enablers. So also to give... They, I think they are factors shaping um, the transition and we should take them into account, but sh- we shouldn't have a pessimistic view in terms of them being only somehow challenges for decarbonization. Um, and then... So in this paper, what we try to do is, um, so we are a political scientists, Elena Bruchin, uh, who's the other co-author, and me, uh, doing quantitative uh, empirical work. And we have many colleagues uh, who are actually modelers. So they build these long-term climate mitigation scenarios. Uh, and then looking uh, at the literature of uh, at the papers written by modelers and, uh, and and working on some papers with them, we realized that actually this, Um, these models uh, could somehow incorporate some of these aspects and so uh, the thing that we wanted to do is make a review of what the political science and the socio-technical transition um, literature tell us about the political and social factors shaping the transition and then discuss a bit how they can be incorporated into uh, these long-term climate mitigation scenarios. Um, And so the first um, factor that we take into account, we call it emissions lock-in, um, and this actually um, builds on an existing term that's a bit more used, which is carbon lock-in, um, that is used to refer to somehow the fact that we have societies that are highly dependent um, economically, technically, but also politically on some uh, polluting sectors um and this can somehow shape also the likelihood of implementing uh, ambitious transition policies so uh, of course this is very intuitive when we think about the the fossil sector um but we used a broader term we didn't use the standard term carbon lock-in but we used a broader term which is emissions lock-in because also there are other sectors uh beside um for instance the industrial sector um, that are responsible for emissions that we should try to mitigate and this is a bit more clear maybe if we think about some concrete examples for instance in the case of Brazil uh, we have um, a lot of emissions coming from the agricultural sector in particular there's cattle and soy production that are responsible uh, for median emissions and also emissions of other greenhouse gases and so in these countries for instance in Brazil of course these economic sectors will try um, we can also think that this is completely legitimate to um, somehow delay um, the transition and try to continue their, their business in the, in the way they're doing so far. So these things, um, uh, of course, they can uh, somehow reduce the social welfare, but these are normal uh, some, somehow phenomena in society. And of course, the higher the, the uh, share of the economy that is dependent on emitting sector, the higher uh, the likelihood that these um interests will try to slow down the transition, for instance uh, by lobbying efforts or other or also for instance trying to influence public opinion. So this is somehow the first idea of how emissions locking can shape ambitious uh, climate policy making or somehow in this case especially slow down.
0: Right. Yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense. And um So that's that's a great description of this idea of lock-in. Let's move now to the idea of capacity. How how does this term – well, first, can you define the term? What do you mean by capacity? And then how does it shape uh, decision-making about ambitious climate policy?
1: Yeah, so capacity is kind of a broader term, can be defined as uh, the ability of uh, to reach a goal that you set. So in the case um, of government, for instance, we often talk about governance capacity uh, or institutional capacity and uh, this is a term that can be used to um, define the ability of reaching policy goals once we set these policy goals. So uh, if a government decides to um, have, a, for instance, a short or long-term climate mitigation target, um, how likely it is that the bureaucratic structure, but also the, um, the economic structure of the country, or uh, the te- technological capacity of, of the society, of, the, of industries and, and companies in the country, how likely uh, they are to contribute to reaching this specific policy goal. So if we set a specific policy goal, we also need the capacity to achieve this specific policy goal. And in this case, we need a combination of um, the capacity of the government and also some enabling actors in society. And this can mean enterprises that are able to contribute to this, uh, or also the society having sufficient uh, technological capacity to implement this goal.
0: That's great. And can you maybe give us an example of how that would play out in the real world where, you know, an example of a government that maybe has limited capacity or a sector that has limited capacity, or on the other side of the coin, a a government or a sector that has very strong capacity uh, to achieve these goals?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, if we think about um for instance uh, countries where we have thinking about the capacity of the government, we can think that some governments are more able to make sure that their goals are actually implemented because for instance there are countries with uh, lower corruption levels, so it's easier to to actually uh, achieve the goals that that the bureaucracy decides um, but also if we think about having um, knowledgeable enabled bureaucrats or people working in public administration that can actually uh, make sure that this policy implement is implemented in detail and if we think about the, the technological capacity for instance if we want to uh, scale up um, the, the amount of energy that is produced from um, solar PVs we of course need people that have the technical abilities uh, to contribute to that uh, so that's kind of the idea behind that.
0: That's great. And this idea of capacity is so front and center in the United States right now um as you know the government tries to implement the inflation reduction act and in other recent laws it's actually uh it's sort of a, a top issue here with the Department of Energy as they're trying to implement really ambitious policies and you know having capacity uh, at the staff level to do that is, is a really big challenge when they're trying to do such ambitious things.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is particularly important now that we're in this uh, kind of very uh, fast transformation phase. Sometimes it's hard to figure out like which capacities you need and actually what's the best way to a- achieve a given goal that you have set. So yeah, I think these are interesting times too.
0: <laughs> so um, the third uh, item that you and your co-author identify as affecting um, climate policy is this idea of public opinion. Um, and this is probably fairly intuitive for our audience, but can you uh, just talk through it a little bit more and help us understand how public opinion shapes uh, policymaking on climate?
1: Of course. Yeah, so this is, as you said, pretty intuitive. But uh, as we know, especially in in democracies, but not only, um, governments somehow, have somehow to do things that public opinion agrees on. So in the case of democracies, uh, of course, government um, need to be elected and and hope to, and politicians hope to be reelected. So of course, public opinion is an important determinant of the policies that a government decides to implement and considers uh, feasible. But this is true if we think about, for instance, air pollution also in um, other political systems. For instance, uh, in China, there are different papers showing that uh, public opinion and, and in particular public opposition so to very high pollution levels were somehow um, an important factor shaping changes in policy also in China so uh, this is particularly important and, and uh, a particularly important uh, factor in, in the, let's say standard democracies but it's important um, across the world um, and having a, a, a supportive public opinion is really important and if we want to, to be be optimistic here if we look at survey data across the globe um, measuring support for climate policies or uh, climate change concern over time we see that actually public opinion is more and more supportive and this is also evident if we look at um, uh, some uh, western countries um, or european countries having um, governments that also now include the green party so we have somehow some, let's say, um, aspect that suggests that public opinion and governments will uh, will implement more ambitious policies because they think this is uh, more, more uh, convenient also in, in electoral terms. So the idea is that supportive public opinion can be an enabler um, of more ambitious climate policies.
0: Right that makes a lot of sense. So um, that's great. I think we've got our three key pieces kind of outlined. And now uh, it's time to get wonky uh, and talk about how these elements can actually get incorporated into the models uh, that expert use to sort of project future energy systems and and climate outcomes under different policies. So can you give us an example of how modelers might like actually like incorporate them into existing integrated assessment modeling frameworks. We're going to, we might use this term IAM, and IAM means integrated assessment modeling framework. Um, can you start us off maybe by just telling us what an IAM is, and then how uh, modelers can start to incorporate these political dynamics into those models?
1: Yeah, sure. So I am happy to to talk about that also because this is something that I learned in recent years because I was not a a modeler, as uh, as I probably said at the beginning. Uh, And sometimes it's easier to teach something that you learned more recently rather than something that's very familiar to you. So hopefully I can be relatively clear. Um, So these models are somehow um, simplified mathematical models of reality and they model... Uh, At the same time, the economic system, the energy system, the climate system, and also the land system, Um, and the way they work is usually um, one can make different assumptions on how uh population will grow, how economies will grow. Um and then you can input these assumptions into the models and the, and also you can make some assumptions on, on some possible policies that are implemented by governments. And then these models uh, some out build some scenarios telling you with these assumptions what will happen. So for instance, we can decide a a very simple example. A model can be used to see uh, like what happens if in the um, whole planet, all countries implement a carbon price of a given amount in a given year. And so you can feed this information in the model and the model can tell you what will happen to emissions over time. So these models are kind of long-term models they model what happens usually until the end of the century, but you can use them in different ways, and they are very salient in in the public discourse and they 're very central in um, ipcc reports so the the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which puts together all the existing literature on climate change that we have um, and to give you an idea of how how policy relevant these models and their scenarios are, um, I think many of us have heard of this um, net zero commitment that many countries have made. So many countries, um, the European Union, the United States, China, they kind of announced that they want to become carbon neutral um, in a given year in the future. And this idea of being carbon neutral in the middle of the century was probably inspired by one sentence in the IPCC report that was based on a, on a review of all different scenarios built by integrated assessment models. And all these scenari- most of these scenarios were saying if we want to reach the long term goal of the Paris Agreement of uh, keeping global warming well below two degrees compared to pre-industrial levels or even possibly reach 1.5, we need to become carbon neutral in the middle of the century. And so this review of the literature actually had an impact on on policy announcements. Um, And so this is to give you an idea of why it's important to engage with um, integrated assessment models. But at the same time, these integrated assessment models were built um, originally for a different purpose. They were not initially built to incorporate uh, social and political dynamics somehow. Um, And so what we uh, see often in existing model scenarios, these model scenarios are... Uh, built to find the most cost-efficient solution, so often there is more mitigation where it's cheaper to mitigate, and often it's cheaper to mitigate in developing countries. Um, but if we see, what, uh, if we look at what is happening now, um, actually most uh, mitigation efforts are being made by, let's say, developed countries, um, which are also, by the way, responsible for uh, the very high shares of of, uh, historical emissions. So there's also an ethical discussion of what should be, what is um, more fair to do, should we, um, Europe and the United States, who have been historically responsible for more emissions, do more. Uh, But besides uh, any normative consideration, it's also not, very likely that developing countries will implement more ambitious mitigation than than developed countries. And so by observing what was happening in existing scenarios, we were thinking that perhaps by incorporating also these social and political dynamics, we can build some scenarios that are a bit more plausible in terms of, for instance, having more mitigation in Europe and the United States, where we are likely to have more supportive public opinion because perhaps our primary needs have already been satisfied and public opinion is more concerned about the environment uh, rather than uh, reducing hunger for instance or having um, basic well-being levels uh, but also in in uh, in, um, in Europe and the United States we're also more likely um, to have maybe the governance capacity or the technical capacity although I, I I think it's important to say that it's not like it's not really clear that people in developed countries care more about the environment this is not true at all Um, and also it's not like um, absolutely true that uh, developing countries have less capacity uh, than developing countries to implement policy so it's really uh, the idea is to just see what's what empirical data tell us about what's happening in the world and being able to capture these differences across different countries and build some scenarios that incorporate um, these social and political dynamics a bit more by using existing empirical data and to go a bit more to the question that you asked um how can we actually incorporate these factors in in, um, in existing models um, and what we can do in these models there are some functions there are some way to model emission reductions for instance and what we can do is to make sure that in the model emissions are not only shaped by economic Uh, for instance, uh, economic and technical uh, factors. But you can also um, include in the functions um, defining how emission um, trends will go. You can also somehow make sure that emissions are shaped also by these um, other um, social and political factors. So you can uh, either constrain emissions or enable emission reductions um, in different ways in countries that have, More or less capacity, or more or less public supportive public opinion, or more or less carbon lock-in.
0: That's great, and I mean, maybe just to follow up and and ask a very practical question about how these ideas get operationalized. Is the idea that um, you know, in the model, different countries or different regions would basically have different? coefficients or, you know, different quantitative levels of public opinion. And then those quantitative levels of public opinion, would they shape the way that the model projects future emissions reductions in those countries or different energy mixes in those countries? Is that the basic idea?
1: Exactly. That's the idea. So the idea is to use existing first empirical data to look at the relationship between, for instance, uh, lock-in capacity and public opinion on the one end, and uh, emission reductions or um, policy decisions on the other end, and, so, and then you can somehow incorporate into the models the coefficients uh, that you derive from empirical analysis, and uh, you can do so especially when you also have some projections of these political drivers, so if we have some projections of uh, LOKIN or some projections of public opinion some projection of capacity and these projections exist, for instance uh, there are existing uh, governance capacity projections that can be used, and uh, we with our colleagues, we're already using. Uh, and so we can use these projections together with projections of GDP and population to uh, define future emission uh, pathways, uh, not only based on these economic and technical drivers and population, but also based on governance capacity, for instance.
0: Yeah, that's great. And one just last question on this. Um, you know I imagine our audience is is imagining how complex this could potentially get, and I'm wondering about a different layer of complexity, which is in the real world, you know public opinion. I'm sure interacts with emissions lock-in and it interacts with capacity. And these things don't remain static over time. So for example, if there's you know a strong lobbying presence from uh, the coal sector in a country, maybe they are able to influence public opinion through advertising or other ways. Um, in your imagination for how these elements can be integrated into IAMs, would they ideally be interacting with each other over time or would they sort of remain isolated in the model and just kind of have their own uh coefficients that that um that don't interact with each other
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's a great question so we're discussing about this a lot and I, uh, our approach at the moment is to start first with very simple efforts where they do not interact with each other so we know that in reality they interact with each other a lot uh, but we since there is really very little uh, um, incorporation of these dynamics into existing scenarios, we think it's already a good step of good improvement trying to incorporate these factors in kind of an exogenous way. So this is the first step. But for sure, you can also, as one can say, endogenize these things. So for instance, you can have, especially for instance, if you think about blocking, uh, uh, in the model over time, you will have different shares of the economy that are dependent on the fossil sector and you can also make this change over time and so also this will change over time and so the impact of uh, lock-in um, on emission reduction or so policy will reduce over time and even more later you can also think um, about making this factor interact with one another. The problem is that these models are already very complex and it's really hard to understand what is driving what so we think it's a bit more transparent to start with an exogenous um, approach, let's say, uh, so that it's a bit easier to understand what is happening there because once you endogenize everything, it's a bit hard to to understand what's happening and probably your outcome is very dependent on, on your assumptions.
0: Right. Yeah, that that's so interesting. And for the non-economist listeners out there, that word endogenize, I, I think, uh, is is mostly referring to the idea that these factors would interact with each other within the modeling framework rather than sort of have their own uh, isolated pathways. So one last question, Sylvia, which you discuss in, in the paper, it's the idea of regional differences. So in some or maybe even many integrated assessment models – there are large geographical groupings. So for example, the entire OECD uh, might be grouped together. So that's like the US and Canada and the EU and Japan and Australia. But we know that these countries have very different political dynamics, very different capacities, different you know potentials for lock-ins. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of regional disaggregation uh, in the modeling frameworks that you are thinking about?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a key point, actually. Um, and this was also a bit puzzling for, um, Elena and me at the beginning, because as empirical researchers, we try to zoom in as much as possible. And these models have this very aggregated, uh, very simplified w- ways of modeling reality, which is, of course, something that you need for, uh, for, for these complex modeling efforts. But then, as you said, you put together often very different regions of the world and then uh, you somehow forget uh, or you cannot incorporate some important heterogeneities within regions. And this is very, very evident. Of course, just think about the United States and Europe. They are very different, but also within Europe, if you think about Poland, which is a country which is very dependent on coal and uh, and Sweden, for instance, which is, which has almost two thirds of, um, electricity being produced by renewables. This, this, uh, these countries are very different. And of course, they're very different in terms of public opinion, lock-in and capacity. Um, so what also one call that we did we, we included in our paper is try to push a bit more for, um, even more uh, disaggregation, a more disaggregated <laughs> disaggregation, let's say. So, um, and this is, has already been done a bit. For instance, in the latest IPCC report is, uh, not long ago, most uh, integrated assessment models and especially these studies that try to put together outputs from different models, they were somehow dividing the world in five macro regions and these are very big, but lately at least in the last IPCC report um, the standard was to use 10 regions and this was already an improvement. Um, but yeah, well, we we would say like the more aggregation the better uh, because there are very important differences that we we, we cannot incorporate when we have this very big region somehow. And um, and maybe one thing I wanted to add um, on the former question, uh, when you were asking how to incorporate these dynamics uh, into integrated assessment models, I also would like to add that there are different groups trying to work on this. Um, and there's also, for instance, WayBank, um, in the United States, who's, she's a moderator as background and she, she's working a lot on, on this, the same topic and, um, and it's very interesting to see. Uh, people, I think this is a very interesting field of research because there are people from different backgrounds and we try to talk to each other. And this is very interesting. We learn a lot, but it's, at the beginning, it's really hard because sometimes it looks like we speak different languages. So this is the true also with my colleagues who are modelers here. At the beginning, we, it took some time to find, find a common vocabulary. And then you, because sometimes you use the same term for two different things or, or the other way around. So I think. Uh, I've, I really love interdisciplinary collaborations, and this is uh, a field of research where you can do that more. But that's also a bit challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting topic, and we actually had Wei on the show a few months ago talking about exactly that. And um, and we also had Fran Moore on the show who's done some some similar work. So it's definitely a, a really exciting area of research, and um, and hopefully our listeners are getting a flavor for it, and and hoping that they will understand like how valuable this could be uh, to add these elements into, uh, into our models and maybe even getting inspired to work on them themselves. So, um, Sylvia, this has been a great conversation, um, really fascinating. Uh, we'd love to end the show by asking you the same question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack, um, something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is really great uh, and that you think our listeners would enjoy.
1: Yeah. So um, I think I would recommend reading On Time and Water by Andri Magnason. I hope I pronounce his surname right. He's uh, an Icelandic writer and he's also a great science communicator. There's also a TED talk. Uh, talking about the same topics of the book, and this is the best book I read so far on climate change, I would say. And it's it's a combination of somehow the story of his family and the relationship of his family with nature and with snow and ice in particular, and a combination of on, of that with um, insights from scientific evidence. So in my case, it was a really good combination of uh, telling us things that we don't know, but also making us feel what climate change means for us as people and communities. So I really, I really recommend this
0: book. That's great. That looks so fascinating. Yeah. On time and water. Uh, Great. We will have a link to that in our show notes so people can check it out. Well, one more time, Sylvia Pianta from EIEE. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today, sharing your work with us. It's been a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been nice to talk to you.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.